Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you. Thank you everybody for joining again to another episode of the Ahmed Khan podcast. Today we have Ustad Muawiyah joining us, who is a graduate from Medina University. He is the founder of Crypto Hash Review, which aims to educate Muslims about cryptocurrencies, but focusing on Bitcoin. Um, and he's done a lot. He's brought a lot of awareness, alhamdulillah, on the topic of Bitcoin and Muslims educating themselves on it. So thank you for joining us, Ustad. Thanks for having me. So with all the chaos that has occurred in the last year, um, I think the one bright thing that, ha- that uh, for both of us has been Bitcoin. Um, mm-hmm. And we begin to see that every month, the price, although the price of Bitcoin goes up, the awareness and discussion on it also increases. Um, mm-hmm. And so with, with the rise of Bitcoin, we're beginning to see also a lot of skeptics arguing that Bitcoin is haram, that Bitcoin is useless, that it has no value, and that we should continue with the current uh, economic model that we've been following. So Scott, mm-hmm. what is Bitcoin and uh, what, is, what is the technology behind it? Okay. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Mustabullah Adiyana Muhammadan wa ala alihi wa sahbi ajma'in. Allahumma. Alimna ma yinfa'una wa anfa'na bima alamtana innika. Antad Alim Hakim. So, Bitcoin uh, was born out of the chaos of 2008. So, 2008, 2009, um, the banks, um, well, you could say the economy had peaked in terms of its uh, bubble. Uh, momentum. And what I mean by that is um, throughout 2001 to 2008, essentially um, interest, riba, uh, went into hyperdrive. So people were, the banks were in essence giving out loans to people, irregardless of whether they could pay it back or not. They were repackaging these loans and re, re, rebundling these loans and selling them on someone else. And then they were repackaging that one and reselling it to someone else. It was a mess. And um, as with all things that are unsustainable, like all Ponzi schemes, at some point it, it comes to a point where it can't sustain itself, can't move on any further. In 2008, when the system was literally about to collapse, when I say the system, I don't mean the system in America, I don't mean the system in Canada, I don't mean the system in UK, I mean globally. Um, within the day, it was about to collapse globally. I mean, I mean, and when we say globally, the reason being why we say include the globe, although kind of think about America or this or this, we talk about Federal Reserve, it was everyone's using the dollar. Everyone's using effectively the same. So governments were forced, not forced, but governments, governments decide to step in and bail out the banks. And what we mean by bailing out the banks, they mean literally print money and then hand it to the banks and saying, here you go, here's some free money to help you continue doing the facade and corruption that you were doing. Rather than penalizing them for causing the problem in the first place or allowing them to take the brunt of what they they uh, caused themselves, the government gave them free money. So Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever that person is, no one really knows who he was, um, wanted to have a system of money that was independent of uh, the central banks. And when we say central banks, he wanted the, the, even to be independent of humans as a whole. So he wanted a system that was decentralized. So this is a little buzzword that we hear often, decentralized. What, what does it really mean? All it means is that there is no single point of failure. 
There is no person who controls the system, manages the system, bails it out what he wants to bail it out. There is nothing like that. It is just a system that anyone can use without boundaries, without discrimination, without censorship. It's just an open system that can be used by everyone. And I'm sure anyone can, can appreciate, and even, even, even if they just think for a second, what, what would the world be? What would the world look like if we actually all used one currency? And if that currency that we used wasn't owned by anyone, so no one can use this currency or use their currency as a weapon in Western countries and are unaware of what happens in other countries, but those who are in those other countries are fully aware of how um, the IMF, which is what's known as the Interna International Monetary Fund, or other um, international bodies spearheaded by Western gov um, um, governments, how they use um, financial policies to keep countries down, to keep countries suppressed, to keep countries prevent them from even moving forward. Um, whereas what, what would happen in a world where they can't actually manipulate demand, they can't collapse a, a country uh, on demand. Um, like I said, there's a lot of things that are going on that we are unaware of in, in Asian countries and African countries and even South American countries to be honest. Um, it, it is well known that it, it, and documented historically that um, foreign countries like American and other countries have actually used um, interest, riba, as a means to put other countries in shackles. So they've actually gone in, destroyed their economy, and then come in and said, okay, we will help you by giving you a loan. Hence, by putting them into slavery and into shackles, because they, they, they gave them a loan they could never pay off. And effectively, they made them, those countries, uh, surrogate countries, as in the, all, the, all their economic activity goes to service the loan. That makes sense. So Satoshi Nakamoto specifically said they wanted to do a, 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 um, a system that was not controlled by those people or by anyone. And I'm sure if anyone was in control of, of money, as at some point, at some point, they're going to use that money for their own selfish needs. That's just human nature. It's not, not something to say, oh, some humans are like this and other humans are not. All human beings, if they have ultimate control over money supply, what do you expect to happen other than they're going, to, they're going to use it to service either themselves directly or their friends or those who are closest to them? I mean, it's just normal. I mean, even in school, I mean, if, you ha if, you ha if you're given responsibility for something, for example, there is that thing in your nafs whereby if your friends come and ask for a favor, you're like, yeah, whatever, mash it, yeah. take it. But whereas someone else you've never known, especially that guy who you don't even like in the class, he's like, <laughs> he comes to the same help, he's like, yeah, back of the queue, innit? It's, it's, it's a human thing. Human beings are that way. So the reason I say human beings is I don't want anyone to think, oh, yeah, if we have this righteous person, that would be fine. No, no, it, it's, it's a human thing. You could be Muslim, you could be non-Muslim. It's just a thing that humans do. Um, so that was the premise. That was the, the, the idea of Bitcoin, a currency that was not in the hands of anyone, rather a currency that anyone can access. But the question is, how do you achieve that? I mean, the way that it's achieved today is so on their computers, on their system, they have a on their computers, they have a database of accounts, balances on each account, and they effectively can control the money flows. They can stop transactions, they can you know withdraw transactions without your permission. They can they they have control over the system. And this is obviously international. So every country, every system has has that centralized control hence why people's assets get seized whereas um how do you achieve that on the internet 
if it doesn't, if nobody controls it, who controls it, or how is it, how is it controlled? That was basically the challenge that Satoshi Nakamoto um, had. Now we're going to release releasing some videos explaining exactly step by step how the mechanism of mining works and issuing new Bitcoin currencies and issuing and processing transactions. We're going to we're actually on a daily basis next week Monday. It's not today, but next week Monday to Saturday because it's six parts. We're going to explain exactly how the system works, but effectively what it is, is that it's a database of transactions that is distributed, which is self-explanatory, it's distributed, it's decentralized. So basically it's a database that doesn't exist in any one place, it exists everywhere. That's the first thing. And um, transactions are processed effectively by putting it into what's called blocks. So you have blocks of information uh, or blocks of data and each block is intrinsically attached to the previous block, hence why it's called blockchain. Um, by doing that, by having blocks of information or blocks of transactions and information in what's called like, a, because it's almost like a timeline. A blockchain is actually a timeline. It's a sequence of events happening one after the other with each new event intrinsically attached to the previous event. And when, when, you, when you daisy chain transactions like that, what happens is that it becomes impossible to edit previous transactions. So anything that happened in the past is unchangeable. It's un, you, you, can't, you can't edit it after the fact. As opposed to our current systems, it's just, they, it just entries in the database. Anyone can edit the data. And that's what, literally what they do. As uh, Joel Powell said in last year when I asked, interviewed him about how does the Federal Reserve print um, money, he just said, just, just enter it into the computer. He literally just said, just enter it into the computer. So they can just enter things into the computer and they can move things around at will. Whereas in a Bitcoin blockchain, you can't. Transactions are put into blocks. Once it's in the block, it becomes immutable. It becomes unchangeable. It becomes hmm. a, almost like written in, written in stone, in granite. And, um, and the ones who put those transactions in the blockchain, again, even that process is distributed. So it's not that I'm, I, I sign up to become a miner and I have a job to just process transactions. No. I will take transactions that people have broadcast to the network. I will, I myself would put it into a block, but then I have to find a unique number which locks that block in mathematically. So it's, it's due to mathematics, but that number can't be known. There's no way mm -hmm. feasibly for anyone to know that number, what that number is. So you actually have to find it. Hence where the whole idea of mining comes into play because you actually have to, just like a miner, goes to Rockface and he etches at the wall and he has to find the resources. A miner in the Bitcoin blockchain has to find that unique number that locks that transaction and makes that transaction immutable. If the person finds that number, his reward is Bitcoin. So new Bitcoins are issued into the network and they are given to the person who earned it. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the most, um, that's, you can also, that's a return to how money used to be. In the past, if I wanted gold or silver or, or shells even, someone had to go out and exert effort, exert time and find these resources and fashion them into money. And he will be the one who deserves that money. I mean, I even heard uh, last year, someone was saying in objection to Bitcoin, oh, money maker should be nonprofit. And that doesn't make sense because if you were to issue money, nonprofit, now the money exists, who gets it? Mm -hmm. That's the question. Who, who, and now I have this money that I didn't earn. It just came out of thin air. 
who do I give it to? And this is what you find is something called the Cantillian effect. And what we see now in society, a Cantillian effect basically means those who are closest to the printing press get the money first. Mm -hmm. And as for the uh, people like us, we're like the last people in the line to get this newly printed money. And by the time that money has got to us, it's now lost some of its value already. So those who got it first, got it when it was new and pristine, it was worth a lot more. As it's been circulated into society, it's now losing value in inflation. The process is, I'll explain another time, it's not the scope of this thing. But the point here is that when you have a process of money printing, by necessity of the process, as in just money coming out of nothing, you get what's called the Cantillian effect. Whereas Bitcoin on social wanted to switch it back on, on the head and go back to how, how it used to be, whereby the only ones who get the, the, the Bitcoin initially are those who actually spent money, time, and effort to mine it. So that's what miners do. So miners, they get computers, and these computers run through obscene amounts of, of combinations of numbers to try and find that unique number that is called a nonce. And that unique number locks that block, and then they move on to the next block. As they keep adding more and more blocks, it basically means all the previous blocks become more and more solid and more and more immutable and unchangeable. So that's, in an essence, without getting technical, what, block, what Bitcoin is. It's just a, a record of who has, who owns what, and a record of who transferred what to who. That's basically it, really. Mm -hmm. A bit of a long explanation, but as a, as a, as a simple uh, and not non-technical as I can get it. Yeah, and I think I think that's the key thing is um, there's a lot of videos out there. I remember when I was first studying about Bitcoin, I thought it was um, it, it was people were making it a lot more difficult um, than it actually was. The idea that yeah. this is a digital currency that is decentralized, meaning it's not backed by any government, and the mm -hmm. idea that there's a finite number of them, so that mm -hmm. nobody, like you said, can mass print them as we do with our yeah. fiat currency. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that is one of the most appealing components of Bitcoin, especially for myself, who is an investor, the idea that there's nobody who, that can cause it to inflate. And yeah. this is this is very important um, in, in today's age where we're living in a COVID world. And I think mm -hmm. the rise of Bitcoin, especially this year, could have only have happened with something like Bitcoin, where people mm -hmm. are seeing the mass printing of money. Yeah. You're from the UK. I'm from Canada and America just created this $1.9 trillion stimulus package. The government mm -hmm. has printed an insane <clears throat> amount of money and our biggest economists are all saying, watch out by the end of the year and you're going to see a massive inflation. So mm -hmm. those are some of the reasons, at least for myself, why I'm finding Bitcoin to be so appealing. It's a move away from the, I don't even want to say traditional uh, conventional uh, economic system. Because this new system has only been around for around 100 years um, mm -hmm. with this abandonment of the gold standard, meaning all the money is mm -hmm. being backed by gold. But mm -hmm. Ustad, what, what makes Bitcoin so appealing to people? Why are people so willing to invest in it? Okay, so, I mean, everyone has their own motivations. Um, some people get into Bitcoin purely because the money is going up, the price is going up. Hence why there's a lot of people talking about it right now. Because Bitcoin literally went from $3,800 this time last year, literally March last year. Now it's close to 60000 That's obscene compared to any other investments. Like, what the heck? And actually, yeah, that's just in dollars. Um, I'm not sure if you heard the news, but last night, literally, as, just before I went to bed, I'll check the, my charts. Sometimes I check it. And I saw, literally in front of my eyes, the Turkish lira hmm. lost 
14% of its value, just like that, it gapped up uh, 14%. Um, basically means that it lost, it went from nine liras uh, per pound to four, uh, 11.4 liras per pound. That's like 14% up. Um, so I checked, you know, because I know lira is suffering. Of, of, not just lira, but other currencies, but lira specifically, Turkish lira is suffering. And I and I discovered that since this time last year, although Bitcoin has gone up in dollars, I think about uh, let's just say I think 20, 20x or just less than about 18, uh, about one thousand eight hundred percent. I think in Turkish lira, it's twenty to two thousand two hundred and twenty eight percent. Two thousand two hundred and twenty eight percent. Uh, from June, March last year till now, that's that's effectively. Don't think of it like the the price of Bitcoin's going up. Think of it as the lira is literally falling off a cliff compared to Bitcoin. So that means if you had um, one thousand lira, lot uh, this time last year, put into Bitcoin, now you would have well in, in the hundreds of thousands of lira. Um, probably can buy a house. So the one reason why people are interested interested in Bitcoin is. Number one, the price action, because some see it as I'm going to make money, whereas others see it, I'm saving my money, as in my, my economy is collapsing and I want to go somewhere where it's safe. And I give this analogy to people that um, it's like you're on the Titanic. And Titanic's a really good example, really good example, because the Titanic was specifically supposed to be the unsinkable ship. Hmm. It was supposed to be so huge, so well designed, that it was unsinkable. And if you think, look, think of those exact same, that exact same phrase, that's, if, that's effectively what, what people think about the dollar. They think the dollar is unsinkable. It's never going to die. It's going to be here forever because it's strong and America has weapons and, and the army and blah, blah, blah. So many people are just sitting in their currencies, you know, thinking, yeah, it's all fine. And then it hits the iceberg. And now the ship is sinking. And there's a little dinghy out in, in the ocean that bumped up and down saying, come, come, here's safety. And then we'll say, no, 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 no. How do I know that thing is even safe? How do I know that if I jump into the water and go into a little dinghy, I'll be safe? And I always say to people, look, your boat is sinking. Are you, are you aware of what's happening? Why are you questioning whether that boat is safe? This boat, the boat is sinking. It doesn't make sense. And that's essentially what, what, how people are addressing it right now. They, they, they see that, you know, uh, they've been told over there is where your money could be safe. Over there, your money could be safe from inflation, safe from collapse, like in many countries like Lebanon, 50% in one day, 50% of your value just gone in one day and got worse days after that. People are seeing this This is happening to them and to their currencies. And some of them are just jumping ships. And you know what? I want, to, I want, out, I want out of this of this, um, this game. I want to put my money where it's safer. That's some. I want to say there's a majority in the West mm -hmm. because... In the West, everyone's quite confident in their currency. Everyone's happy that the euros are going to be here, that the pounds are going to be here, even their dollars are going to be here. Um, but definitely in the Eastern countries and the Southern countries, you've got your continent of Africa, the continent of Asia, and South America specifically as well, where their economies, are, their, their currencies are literally falling off a cliff. For them, Bitcoin is a lifeline. Bitcoin literally is a lifeline. Just today, I was listening to a podcast of someone who's um, involved in Africa, and he's talking about literally how Bitcoin is transforming Africa on its own. And he mentioned some of the issues that Africa has that I was unaware of. I mean, for example, did you know that in Africa, there are caps on how much you can spend uh, on your credit card? 
they actually put limits and send. So if I wanted to, it's actually in some cases cheaper to put the money in a suitcase and travel to another country than to use um, a remittance, than to actually just send it. That's how difficult it is for them to actually transact amongst themselves because um, the dollar is limited in those countries. So they have strict control as to how much you use and when you can use those dollars. Whereas with Bitcoin, like Nigeria specifically, they've literally leapfrogged over that system and now they can transact freely. And uh, from in one year, one of the reasons why Nigerian government recently on central bank, they, they told the bank not to process and people sent to exchange to get Bitcoin was because last year they made a profit of something like $4 billion, the government and uh, connected bodies in remittance fees. So sending money in and out, they made 4 billion in remittance fees. And since COVID started and whatnot, it had actually dropped down to only 50 million. And they wondered, what the heck, where's, where's the money going? Mm-hmm. What, what, how, how, can, how has our revenue stream just dropped off the cliff? Because they actually found a way to transfer, transact money without them. And that's why they panicked. They felt, okay, wait, we're losing our control. You see this, you see that keyword there? Mm-hmm. We're losing our control. So the government and the bank say, let's stop this, let's stop this. And that's effectively what Bitcoin does. Bitcoin takes back control from those who mis- mismanage their responsibilities and gives it back to those who it should belong to. As in, if your money should be yours, you should have the, you should have the right to control it and do with it as you wish. That's effectively what Bitcoin does. So there's many reasons why people get involved in Bitcoin. Mostly in the West is speculation. I want to make more money. I've got to buy hair, sell hair, and make some profit. That's a lot of people like that. Well, not everyone. I mean, like myself, I, went, I never was interested in Bitcoin for that reason. My interest grew from, from my need and desire to leave Bitcoin and interest. So um, everyone has different reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for myself personally, um, like I reiterated, um, there, is, there is this, you know, all of our big economists, all of them, it's, it's almost a consensus claim that the, the next big financial crash is really going to be one similar to what happened in 1929 with the Great Depression. Um, mm-hmm. And the analogy that they give is that it's just every time a new president comes in, they're just kicking the can forward, hoping that yeah. somebody else will deal with the problem. But in the process, the system is only getting worse. Um, yeah, yeah. And so for myself, I've seen how much money the Canadian government has printed. Um, and I'm, I, I, you know, it, there, there's a lot of speculation even in Parliament that there's going to be this massive inflation. And to me, I've worked hard to accumulate whatever money that I've had and to have it disappear, um, not disappear, but to have it inflated um, for not for for no fault of own uh, non, for for not my own fault is something that mm-hmm. that keeps me a bit um, terrified. And so I, I do engage in the stock market, but when I look at Bitcoin, I see something special. I see something of a revolution. Mm-hmm. And I have um, you know my my brother my brother makes a little bit money online, and people pay him in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And Subhanallah, my mind is blown at how fast the transaction is how there's yeah, no intermediary yeah. in the middle. And yeah. we, we, at our uh, MSA, we had to pay our scholar um, money, but he lives in the United States. And we mm-hmm. couldn't e-transfer him because he had an American bank. So we had to go through PayPal and we had to go through that entire process. But had we done a Bitcoin transfer, it would have gone immediately. And yeah. something important I forgot to mention to you, Astad, is my family, we own a currency exchange, which, I've been, sure. working at, which I've been working at for seven years. So... Mm-hmm. I have a good idea of how the currency system works 
And yeah. also, what's, what's very interesting, we also send money abroad. Yeah. So there are services such as MoneyGram and Western Union. But yeah. with something like Bitcoin, it, those avenues are not needed anymore because you can just yeah. do it directly in a matter yeah. of moments. But also the downfall that I'm seeing, and I would like to hear your response to this, is that, that this can open the door for the black market, for people to use this to engage in illegal transactions. Um, mm -hmm. How would you respond to something like that? Yeah, so, I mean, the thing is, uh, the, the way I look at money is that, historically speaking, prior to modern history, Money was money, as in it was something you had and transacted and you didn't need to do it. It was a private matter between two people. No one ever knew or could ever know that a transaction ever occurred unless they told you about it. Only recently, in the last couple of decades, we've had the ability to actually trace transactions. So uh, what I always say to say people is, that, okay, was the world so bad? before 20 years ago, when we aren't, when money transactions weren't, tra weren't traceable, weren't able to, to interact between different places. And on top of that, would, is it really fair to penalize the whole planet Earth for the minority of people who might use it for nefarious activities? And that's the reality, actually, funnily, funnily enough. Um, people who are involved in crime, any society, are always in the minority. I mean, it's, it's never, there's, there's never a society where like 50%, 40% or 30% are involved in crime. I mean, they say something like, I think there was a statistic I came across the other day, something like, um, no, 90% of crimes are done by 5% of those who actually are criminals. As in, most of the crimes are done by a few people. Even amongst criminals, most of that crime is done by very few of them. Maybe someone might, might do one crime here, might, might hit a car and run and whatnot. It's, it's a one-off, one-time, two-time criminal, whatnot. But persistent, it, it's nonsensical to penalize to the, the seven point whatever billion human beings for the less than a couple million of those who are, uh, uh, what's it called, um, criminals. And then the second thing is some of these criminal activities that are deemed criminal, criminal activities are not criminal activities, not, not at least Shara'an or Islamically speaking. And the thing is, what, what people don't realize is that a large proportion of what's called money laundering, Islamically speaking, has nothing to do with drugs or assassinations or any kind of things like that. It's just to do with taxation. So um, yeah. effectively, what, what, when people say, oh, nefarious activities, all we're really saying is, for the, the majority of it, there are people are avoiding paying their taxes. So maybe human beings, we should, if that's the case, if we embrace Bitcoin, and this is a thing that people are worried about, maybe we should start looking at other models to fund our, our civilization models that have, have been used throughout history. I mean, how else do people fund things in the past? Like, like at the time of Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, a whole civilization of the Muslimin who never had tax, by the way, how did they function generation after generation, century after century without any tax? How does Saudi Arabia function or Dubai and other places without taxation? I mean, I'm not saying that, that um, I'm not speaking about of, of any government and say that everyone is haram or kind of stuff. That's, that, that's another discussion. But what I'm just saying is that there are other ways to um, generate income and there are other ways to spend things. So, for example, and this and, we, and in other ways whereby blockchain actually opens up. So, for example, let me just give an example of road tax. I'm, I'm sure every country has road tax, you know, the tax you pay for the, for the servicing of the roads. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, with cryptocurrencies, we can have something called microtransactions. Microtransactions basically mean when I send you 
a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a, of a penny. As in something so small, you wouldn't even notice it's gone. Okay. That means, technically speaking, we actually could, for the first time in, in history, human history, privatize roads. I just, just an idea. Think about it. Just an idea. Nothing must do it. Imagine you can have roads that are owned by people. And when you drive on that road, you literally pay a tiny toll fee. I mean, just like we have toll fees and bridges, which is like a couple of dollars, whatnot. Imagine your toll fee for driving per road was one hundredth of a penny per road. I.e., over the year of driving, it might add up to be like whatever business, whatever road tax is. But the idea is that with those micro fees, which goes to the actual road owner, they are incentivized traffic. So that means they have to now maintain that road, make sure the road is not having any potholes, make sure they actually it, it reduce traffic. You can actually incentive, you can actually have people competing to have you drive, drive on their roads. And that actually can, that would actually service itself in terms of the cleanliness of the road, in terms of the traffic, all these things, they would now be responsible for it because they want to have your business effectively. So you can actually generate other avenues uh, of, of, of sustaining society that doesn't involve forcefully taking tax from unwilling participants. For example, I, have, I, I don't have, for example, a car, for example. Why would I be paying taxes for other people's cars? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You can channel otherwise. Anyway, back to the point is, your question was about um, uh, using Bitcoin for criminality. I mean, at the end of the day, that's not stopped even with our current system. So if it hasn't stopped with our current system, then why are we complaining about a new system? Four, I think four point something trillion um, dollars was laundered just in 2019. That was, that was, that's a fraction of Bitcoin. What they suspect was laundered on Bitcoin was a fraction of a fraction of, of all that. So most money laundering takes place in a dollar. So why are we even mentioning um, Bitcoin as an issue for money laundering and criminal mm-hmm. activities? Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And the idea that most of, uh, most of the criminal activity is really in the realm of taxation and not in the, in the realm of, um, you know, assassinations or, or, or robberies. Um, I mean, the thing is, we've even, see, we even seen that now, actually. I'm not sure if you've been hearing in America, where a lot of, a lot of places like high tax rate states, um, rich companies and individuals are actually migrating away. So a lot of people have moved to Texas because yeah. of, the, of the tax breaks and whatnot. Elon Musk, a lot of factories and, and companies are moving from high tax bracket, uh, high tax rated um, um, states to lower ones so that now what, what you're now seeing now is that states are now competing for business yeah so I'm not sure if, uh, now we're seeing actually a lot of places are trying to compete for for people's income by saying come to our country and work remotely I just read today that UAE have now released a new visa called the um, the, the foreign worker I think, no, the, the remote worker visa <laughs> interesting, which is really interesting. Now, what they're saying now is that if you, you you might work for Twitter, you might work for Google, you might work for Apple, or whatnot. Why don't you work here and just re- work remotely? I mean, you can you can still d- dial in, you can still do your work. I mean, if you can work remotely, we'll give you a visa and just come and stay here and work. That's actually going to be a new dynamic in the start scene developing, where people just go go elsewhere, buy a ranch somewhere in uh, some re- re- far off country, and you just as long as you've got your internet connection. You can do your internet, you can do your work. That doesn't work for everyone. What I'm saying is that we're going to start seeing the economy changing anyway. Mm. Internet's going to change things anyway. And Bitcoin is a way to facilitate um, doing that. Mm. Yeah, and this is an excellent point that you just brought up, 
is this idea that because of COVID, because of this online, because of because of the rise of Zoom calls, uh, I mean, because of Zoom, we're able to do this call. I mean, you're all the way in London. I'm in Vancouver. But um, many of my yeah. friends that are engineers or in the computer sciences, um, they're all working at home. And they've told me that they could work anywhere in the world, um, like you said, on this type of t- temporary, uh, like all this online visa, remote visa. So it's a very interesting concept. Um, yeah. The I, I wanted to segue into a different topic, which we touched upon, which is the Muslim world and Bitcoin. And this is this in and of itself could be a, a whole other podcast. But what we are seeing is um, the only Muslim country around the world, or one of the few that have begun to somewhat accept Bitcoin and have begun to mine them, is a country like Pakistan, um, who their their KPK province. Um, has decided to create mines to Bitcoin. But mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot of hesitancy in other Muslim countries and in countries around the world. But why are governments or perhaps Muslim governments in general so hesitant to take on Bitcoin, although now it's beginning to become mainstream? I mean, <clears throat> I, I can only speculate. I mean, there's, there, there, there's no way of knowing why. That is the case. I mean, you can only speculate as to the why. And uh, one of the things that I would, I would say that would allude to an answer is what some have said directly. That the one fatwa I read a few weeks back, and I literally fell off my chair when I read it. He said that Bitcoin is not haram because it's not currency, because he doesn't see why it's not currency. So he accepts that it is a currency, but he said it's haram because it harms the central banks. Now, I've, I, 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 I couldn't process that. I mean, how, how can you process that? Central banks that effectively issue, they are the ones who manage and issue interest-bearing loans and regulate interest-bearing loans across the whole country and you want to preserve the institution? I don't understand why. But effectively, what, that, what, it, what it does mean though is that they, it effectively Bitcoin depowers governments to a larger degree. And this is an unfortunate reality. If you look at the... Muslim Khulafa, their powers were limited, severely limited. Muslim leaders don't have much power. I mean, I mean by power as an independent power. A Khalifa is only supposed to implement the Sharia, nothing else. He's not supposed to do anything more than that. Maybe some, some, some masalih, some, uh, you know, implement some policy to try and regulate and help the, the smooth implementation of the Sharia. But in terms of that, nothing else, nothing more than that. Let me give an example. The Sahaba went to the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and said to him, Oh Messenger of Allah, verily the markets and the prices have gone up. So can you set the prices for mm. us? And he said, Verily Allah is the one who sets the prices. Now, being the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, being the leader of the Muslimin, it was very easy to say, Okay, well, we all need dates and we all need wheat as, as bare essential and water. So based on that, I'm going to make the water this price so that everyone can afford it. That would have been very easy. And no one would have argued. I mean, no one would have objected to that, what looks like an altruistic and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, uh, what's the word? Uh, a goodwill gesture to those who are struggling. But the answer was no, that's not the remit of our leader. It says very large one sets of prices, i.e. the markets are a free domain for price discovery which again, set the, price, set the precedent or set the, the, 
set the um, the the, um, the the groundwork for effectively what became capitalism. So capitalism or capitalist ideologies developed from the interaction of the merchants in Venice with the North North African Muslims. You could trace back the history of capitalism back to Muslims. So the foundation and groundwork for modern capitalism stemmed from that open market policy which Muslims already had. So Muslim leaders, beyond expanding the borders of the Muslimin and protecting the Sharia and establishing the Adhan and the Salah and the Eid and the whatnot, beyond that, it's open. You do as you wish. You're free to do, do as you wish. You're free to conduct your, your life as you wish. Even the Kuffar, who pay the jizya and live in their own realm, they're free to do as they wish in their own realm. Long mm-hmm. do not bring their stuff to the public domain. The government doesn't have much to do. As in, Khalifa doesn't have much to do. I mean, it's, it's, it's an easy job to do. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to politically. I'm, I'm sure it's quite difficult. But I'm just saying, the control and remit they had wasn't that much. Mm-hmm. But obviously, over the most recent years and centuries, governments have taken more and more control. And more and more Muslim countries have taken Western countries as, as their model. Their model for taxation, their model for monetary policies, their model for fiscal policies. Their money, they're, they're, they've literally adopted a foreign model that is based on controlling what you do. So imagine you're a leader of some country of Tunisia or whatnot, or whatnot and this time you, you've, you've been the one who's in charge of dictating the price of this and dictating the price of that and forcing this and forcing that. Now, all of a sudden, your power has been taken away from you. It is frightening. I mean, I'm sure it is, it is frightening. And I say it's, it's similar to what I deal with when it comes to um, husbands who come to me um, and they're worried about I would say worried, but I'm sure they wouldn't say it's worried. But sometimes I have um, married couples come to me for advice. The woman says he's too overbearing and too controlling. I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do this, I have to do that. And he's saying, yeah, because I'm the husband and, and my wife has to obey me. And I have to say to them, brother, yeah, she has to obey you in some things, but not everything. If you tell her to, to hop on one leg, is she, is she supposed to obey you and hop on one leg? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, said, if, you, if you said to her, you know, hold your breath until you're blue, does she have to hold her breath until she's blue? I mean... There, there, there are limits to your dominance, which stops at a certain place. Yes, you are in control of the family. Yes, you, you, you control the direction and where the family goes. We don't control everybody's individual actions. Mm. So that's effectively what we see right now. We're seeing that governments are enjoying their control, controlling literally everything that you do, every facet, every, where you can park, where you can't park, where you can do this, and where you can, everything they're controlling. Um, and some of that control is necessary, not, not denying it, by the way. Some of that is necessary for, for regulating and organizing people. But I'm saying that, that why are Muslims afraid of it? I think that's one of the reasons why they're afraid of that. Because if you open that floodgate, you literally, all your infrastructure that you've got in place, and especially the Muslim countries that have, who are knee deep in the riba, what, 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 what are they going to do? I mean, how can they get loans from the IMF when the IMF are telling them why then what how are you you know they're, they're literally like, look, look like um, Nigeria they leapfrog over the banks and got on with their lives and actually left the bank out, out, out in the street they, they, they weren't able to capitalize on their business so you can see that, that it's, it's it is frightening for them and we see that in Egyptian the Egyptian fatwa and uh, the Turkish fatwa whereby they actually said ironically that Bitcoin harms the economy. See, that's the, you see the key there? They say it harms the economy. I.e., let me translate that for you. It harms their version. No, does that make sense? So I think there's many reasons, but I think at the, at the core of the reason is loss of control. 
the idea of having a free and open market is frightening for some. Um, but I think as Muslims, that is the ethos of Islam, is to have a free and open market with actual price discovery and not to limit things, you know. I mean, I, I think maybe you could say it's almost similar to the controls governments have on the movement of people. So there's two things, movement of people, movement of capital, controlling what can come in and out of a country in terms of money, and controlling who comes in and out of the country in terms of people. So we said, why is it so difficult to actually get a passport in many of these Muslim countries? Why? I mean, literally, literally speaking, these countries need foreign um, skill set and knowledge, but yet you, you can't get in. Why is that? Because they want to control who comes in and out because they're scared that if people come in, what will happen? So it's basically those two things. And even Algerian government, when they banned Bitcoin and Morocco, when they banned Bitcoin, those are the two things that they mentioned because it breaks down the, the controls they have on money in money flows in and out of the country. You know, there, there, when COVID first started, there was this uh, quote that was being circulated. And it's, a, it's an ancient quote. It's nothing new, but it says that politicians will often use fear to take away your civil liberties. Mm. And that's, and there is, to a certain degree, the, the politicians exerting their control in terms of who can come to our house, what places we could go to, but also in the realm of our economics. And um, there are certain limitations. Now, some could say... Those are, some can say those limitations are for the better, but to a certain degree, we, we want, you know, we, we want to exert our own control. And like you mentioned, Bitcoin does offer that, 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 uh, that road for us to embark upon where we are in control of our money. Um, and uh, it's, it's, to me, it's a bit disheartening seeing these Muslim countries either say it's haram or to prohibit it just on grounds that it's going, it's going to harm our economy. Um, whereas if these Muslim countries invested in Bitcoin a year ago from now, a good amount of money, their economies would have soared hundreds of times. I, I was just saying that, um, I was just saying that it looks like the, the trajectories are only going higher. And one mm -hmm. of the arguments that you hear against Bitcoin is this, oh, I should have invested a year ago. It's too late now. But these same people will be saying that a year from now, if it increases, and then a year from now, if it increases again, because- I mean, right? I, I, I don't yeah. think that Bitcoin, I don't think Bitcoin will increase um, beyond 2021 in the sense of Bitcoin has cycles where it increases mm -hmm. drastically. And then it has about three, three, two to three years of, of, of calming down and going sideways. And there's a reason for that due to the halving, but that's another discussion altogether. But yeah, I mean, the, 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 the price action of Bitcoin is one thing, and that's definitely what interests many people. But I think, like I said, it's the sovereignty, which is, which is something some people are, are, are missing. Um, one of the reasons why, why, why um, uh, some Muslim countries and even scholars are uh, skeptical and against Bitcoin is because of what they've understood. Also, another thing we have to factor in, not just about people want to preserve their system. Sometimes it's just to do with fear. I mean, uh, uh, given a legitimate ruling on a... If I said for the phone here, if you touch the phone with your hand, you go drunk. But if you look at it, you go drunk. Then don't be surprised if the scholar says, looking at it and touching it is haram. Because obviously, if it makes you drunk, then it's haram, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But if I said to you, Sheikh, 
by the way, true, it doesn't make you drunk. Then obviously yesterday, Justice Fatwa said, okay, that's okay. If it's not drunk, if it doesn't do that, then it's fine. So a lot of what the scholars said about Bitcoin being haram and the, and the reason why they say it's haram is because of the misunderstanding of what it actually is and how it functions. So they said it's Bitcoin is haram because it does this one Z. And you, all, all, all that needs to be done now is I said, Sheikh, with all due respect, that's not what happens. And then you, I'm sure you'd find, as some scholars have already started to do, they'll readjust their fatwa. It's just a way of having the right perception of how things function. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And um, I think as time passes and more research is done, um, things will change. The, the, the Fiqh Council of North America uh, issued their fatwa saying they couldn't find anything about Bitcoin that was haram because mm -hmm. the, the principle is everything is halal until it is deemed haram until we have proof mm -hmm. that it's haram. So they mm -hmm. couldn't, so they couldn't find anything. And that's why in, like you mentioned in the, particularly in North America and, and the Western countries, you're, you're seeing a lot of Muslims engaging in, in, in Bitcoin, but mm -hmm. there, there is an argument that I would like to ask you is people claim mm -hmm. that Bitcoin is too volatile and therefore mm -hmm. we should not be investing in it. How would you respond mm -hmm. to something like that? So yeah, the first, uh, thing I would suggest is people to understand is that at least myself anyway, I don't know about other, other people, but at least myself, I don't advocate for Bitcoin as an investment. I advocate Bitcoin as your base currency. Big, the big difference. Mm -hmm. um, you could invest in Bitcoin to make more fiat, but I'm saying fiat is dead. There's no reason to go back to fiat. We should have our currency as Bitcoin until something equally as good, if not better, comes along. That's what that's that's my difference. So, for example, if, if someone if someone said to me, "When should I sell my Bitcoin?" I would say, "Don't <laughs> spend it." I mean, if you want to buy something, spend your money on Bitcoin. Uh, spend your money on what you want to buy. But as for selling it to go to pounds, then why? So that the, is, is the first premise that I think it's it's the wrong idea. Uh, um, to think of Bitcoin as an investment. Because when you think of Bitcoin as an investment, you're, you're still thinking mentally as it's a foreign thing to you. It's not the hair. It's something over there you buy and then you come back. You go over there for a bit and then you come back. Almost like um, I got, I, I would never say I'm going to put my money into dates as a currency because you'll buy dates to sell dates. But at the end of the day, your, your base currency is dinar or dirham, whatever it is. I'm saying that we should start building an e economy based on Bitcoin, that's the first thing. And second thing, I think it's a bit, bit disingenuous um, uh, and dishonest for people to say it's volatile when plenty of currencies across planet Earth are more volatile than Bitcoin. It's, a, it's actually an established statistical fact. Just follow the part, just look at the, chart, the, the, the charts of, of, of many countries that are way more volatile than Bitcoin and have consistently lost value over the last 10 years. Since Bitcoin has been born, it's gone from worth less than a, a cent to now being worth up no, no, almost $60,000 over the period of 10 years. Now, just look at the, the, the Turkish lira 10 years ago to now. It's gone from, uh, it, was near to, it was near on par with the pound, as in one pound to one lira, I think it was or one pound to two lira, something like that. Now we're looking at 11. So it's, it's, it's not just halved, it's not just, it's, it's literally a fraction of what it used to be less than 10 years ago, uh, in, in just yeah, less, less than 10 years, and it's getting worse. Lebanon, just last year, we saw the, the whole economy, the whole um, um, currency collapse to, to nothing, almost nothing. 
So where, how can you compare the short-term uh, volatility of Bitcoin, which is fine, by the way, that's how currencies are supposed to be, um, compared to the global decline of all currencies, including the dollar. The dollar has lost 97% of its purchasing power since it was born in 1971. This, I mean, just process that for a second. Those who were born just 10 years before I was born, in their lifetimes, the value of the dollar has lost 97 plus percent of its purchasing value. 97 percent of its purchasing value has disappeared in the course of our lifetimes of some people might be watching this now or, or near enough. Compare that to Bitcoin. So, so yeah, you could say, yeah, it goes up and it goes down, which is how currency should do. But the net is still up. And look at other currencies. It may seem to be on level, which it isn't, by the way, but the net is down. So you can look at, you can look at it that way, but the, the, that's not how, that's not reality. As in basically, not be, be, be just in how you judge Bitcoin's price action, be just. Exactly. And you brought up a great point, which I wanted to start the video with, um, which is um, we're not giving investment advice, financial advice on what you should invest in. Um, we don't want to be liable to that. But to me, to, to me um, like I mentioned earlier, I'm not necessarily seeing Bitcoin as an investment. I'm seeing it more of putting my, moving my money into another system, which I'm, I'm beginning to, as, as time progresses, as I'm beginning to see inflation. I mean, the US dollar was thought, people haven't been following, but the US dollar is inflating. Um, our Canadian dollar to US was at the beginning, uh, one year ago was 1.42. Um, so one can, uh, so one US dollar cost us 142. Now it's at 124. And every day it keeps wow. dropping. Um, wow. So we're, we're seeing these things before our eyes. But, um, you know, one of the great tragedies um, I see in, in our community is not that is, is, is the diminishment of discussions on Islamic economics um, and the economic systems. And although there are some people who are trying, yeah. um, there's not enough awareness on this topic. And when it's mentioned, it's usually in the context of zakat which is obligatory mm -hmm. upon us. So the mm -hmm. topic that I want to end off with you is what is your advice to people who are seeing what's going around right now in our economic system, seeing the mass printing of money, seeing the inflation and possible hyperinflation soon to come, not, not as an investment advice as to you should invest in this, but what, what, what can you tell them? I mean, Anyone, which is, a, I guess, a continuation of what you said about not financial advice, anyone who hears what I've said, I said, oh, well, because Mari says that I'm going to put my money into Bitcoin, then they should only blame themselves for whatever happens. Let me explain why. Part of owning money and having money is having knowledge about how to use it. So it's, it's a bit like saying, if I, if I bought a car and I have no idea how to drive a car and I crush a car, it's no one's else's fault other than you because you chose to drive your car with no knowledge. Unfortunately, we have, we have gone to university, gone to, gone to school, university, college, and we've learned everything else but how to manage money. And that should be the beginning. That should be the asl. That should be the beginning. And even in Sultan Nisa, Allah mentioned in the Quran, and if you sensed from them, the orphans, then give them their, their money. 
what, is, what, what, is, what that's referring to is that when you are taken care of by an orphan in Islam, you are responsible for managing his financial affairs. Mm. But what, at one point, do you transfer that management back to um, the, the orphan? You do so when they, are, when, when they become financially savvy, when they become financially aware how to manage money. So in tafsir of this, Aisha mentioned that what they used to do during that time was they used to give a small portion of their wealth to them and send them to the markets and see how they behave. What did they come back with? Did they come back with a bag of sweets? Wasted their money on sweets? Or did they actually come back with some profit? Did they actually turn around a profit? What have they learned? And are they able to manage their funds? As soon as they are able to manage their funds independently, at that point, um, then they give them over their money. So we can see already at the time of the Sahaba that they already are aware and quite conscious about money management. So what I would suggest everyone does is go down the rabbit hole. And that's, a, and that's one of the beautiful, beautiful things about Bitcoin is that that's exactly what it does to people. It actually makes them be aware that, wait, what is money? If these guys can print money out of nothing, why do you even pay taxes then? I mean, literally, <laughs> literally, if you could print money, $1.9 trillion, I'm not paying money every, every, every they've got to work. I mean, we, we, literally, UK has been, it's been ridiculous. They've been, uh, they put people on furlough, which basically means they, they don't have to go to work. The government pays them their wages. And that was supposed to last for like three months or two months. One year later, they're still in furlough and they're going to extend, they already extended it to September. I mean, let's absorb that for a second. The government is printing money on a monthly basis to pay people to stay at home. And they've been doing that for over a year now. They started last year, March. Now it's March and it's going to end, so they say, in September. That's insane. If you think about that as, as a concept. So... Just keep on doing it, doesn't it? Why, why end the furlough? <laughs> I mean, you can't you keep on doing it, but I'm saying it just shows you that the system is ridiculous. It doesn't even make sense. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't help people out. I'm not, not saying that. But what I'm saying is that we have a system that allows such a thing to behave. So when you start seeing that, and it's like questioning, okay, what is money? What makes money even have value paper? Why was that paper worth this bag of food? This is what, what, what I really want people to start thinking about and exploring. It's, which is why we spent literally uh, a whole month producing like over, over, over 60 videos, just explaining to people, breaking it down video by video. Um, what is money? What is the history of money? What gives money value? What is our current system? How does our current system function? function? Um, what, and, then, and, and what is Bitcoin? And how does Bitcoin, Bitcoin network function? We've, we spent a whole, uh, and really released each video every day, but we spent a whole month um, developing that curriculum and that thing to help educate Muslims about that question. What is money? Once you understand what money is and what money needs to be and what money should be, then it becomes quite inevitable. I mean, as Elon Musk said, when, when Tesla announced they bought Bitcoin, he said, in hindsight, it was inevitable. And I think that's, that, that, that actually became encapsulated forever in the blockchain. Someone actually put that in the blockchain, that's that message after you said it, that tweet. They actually sent an, a transaction and put that in blockchain. In hindsight, it was inevitable. Because that's one of the things about blockchain or Bitcoin, because it's communication, because Bitcoin is actually communication, as well as sending money over the, over the network, you can actually also send information. There's actually an app, 
a, a, a chat app, like, you know, WhatsApp and Telegram. There's actually a chat app called Sphinx that actually exists on the blockchain. You actually communicate with other people mm-hmm. but like, through a chat on the Bitcoin network, literally, because this is a communication app. So history, insight, it was never. Once people learn about Bitcoin, they will see it was obvious. It was an obvious, it was an obvious play. The only thing people have after is maybe anxiety, maybe Bitcoin network will fail, maybe this happened. But if you know what Bitcoin is, you, those anxieties will kind of go away. So what my advice to people is don't buy anything. Don't throw your money at anything. Keep your money where it is. Educate yourself. Once you educate yourself what Bitcoin is and you find good reasons in yourself to buy Bitcoin, then it becomes inevitable. Exactly. And I think the, the, the point that you mentioned that when you study Bitcoin, you're you're opening yourself into this entire discipline of economics is, is amazing. I mean, if you look at my bookshelf here, I have one book here on economics. That's it. Um, because for me, I never felt that that was something I needed to know until yeah. a couple months I started uh, researching, researching into Bitcoin. Then I began yeah. to ask, what is money? What is mm-hmm. fiat currency? Um, you know, I struggled for so long with Todd trying to figure out why governments just can't keep printing out money. To- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, for, for, those, for those who are interested in, in studying economics, just to give you a, a, little, a little heads up. Um, so there's, in terms of capitalism, uh, I mean, socialism is obviously basically where, where effectively the state is in control of, of everything. But with capitalism, there's effectively two schools of thought, main schools of thought. One's called Keynesian economics, what's called Austrian economics. Now, most governments on planet Earth are Keynesians. And Keynesians basically mean that, you, that they believe fundamentally, one of the fundamental differences of Keynesian and Austrian is that they believe that economies and governments can function on debt. Mm. So that's effectively how the government works. As in, when you say the national debt, what it means is that, I mean, I mean let me just correct a misunderstanding most people have. People think when you pay your taxes, the government uses that money to pay for services. So I pay my taxes to build roads. I pay my taxes for the hospitals. I pay my taxes for whatever services, you know, taking the rubbish. That's not how it works. Governments print money. With that money they're printed through government-issued bonds, they spend those that money income on what they need, on the roads, on the, host, on, 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 on the, the hospitals and whatnot. They spend that money on that and then they use your taxes to pay back the debt they took out in your name. This is most people people understand. Every day, whenever they have their fiscal policy and whenever they have their, their they get together and they decide, they take out interest-bearing loans on your name. In your name, they take out these loans, and then they say to you, "You have to pay back this debt." So when they say the national debt, that basically means the debt that is that you have to pay because we took out the loan on your name. So um, that's the reason why they have that is because of Keynesian economics. Keynesian economics is very intrusive, very, and intrusive in, 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 not in a bad way, but in a way that basically they, they say the government needs to have more role in how things should function. Austrian economics, which is more in line with Islamic economics, literally power and power for most, for most of it, not, not entirely, but most of it, believe in an open market and, and, and reduced inter, inter, interference from government. So basically, if, if, you had, if, you had, if you could imagine American government became Austrian overnight, that would basically mean that they would open the markets for people to in, innovate and, and invest and whatnot, and they would withdraw the, the, you could say, the chains of taxation. So rather than you being taxed X amount of money in your money, 
that additional money you have now in income, you can spend on paying for these services instead and that kind of stuff. So the, when you look into economics and stuff, when you, when you look at um, Bitcoin, that kind of stuff. Oh, another thing about Austrian is that they believe in sound money. That was not, that's also my other point. Mm-hmm. So with Keynesians, for them, money needs to inflate every so often. And, and inflation rate is great for them. Austrians are different. They, think, they believe in sound money. That basically money and the price of goods and services are signals to the economy. I cannot really know the trouble by other um, um, think, uh, faculty. So for example, in the UK, we have um, what's called the black cabs. I'm not sure you've heard of them. Black cabs. Central no. London. We have basically, basically cabs. They're black. <laughs> it's called black cabs. <laughs> uh, but basically, to be a black cab, there's a very difficult process. You have to memorize every single road in London. I know it sounds a bit ridiculous, but literally you have to memorize every single road, their name, how to get there in your head. No, no tom-toms, no, no sat-navs. You have to actually, to learn, drive, get a moped, drive around London and memorize every single road in London. And then you have a test where they test you, where's this road? How did you get from here to here? And you have to make sure, make, you have to be a, a walking sat-nav. Once you can do that, then you have permission to be a taxi cab in central London. So what, why, did they, why, have they, why have they done that? They've done that to regulate who can be in the market. Basically become like a cartel. In order to be a part of this business, you have to pay effectively. Whereas if you let the market open, then anyone could be a black, black cabbie or anyone could be a taxi, mm-hmm. black taxi cabbie. And what happens is that the price now of being a taxi cab comes to where it should be. At the moment, getting a black cab is very expensive. Why is that? Because it's a small people, small, it's a small uh-huh. cartel. Markets have been manipulated, they've been corrupted. That's effectively the difference between Austrian and Keynesian. Austrian, like, like Islamic economics, there shouldn't, there shouldn't really be any interference to the open market. Everything should be open and let people discover, uh, compete to get your, your business. And that's basically a little, little introduction to try and help you in uh, your, your journey in understanding economics. And I advise a very good book called Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. Um, it is, as the name describes, um, um, written, uh, but it's written in a style that anyone can access it. Number one, Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. And if you're too lazy to read, they have actually have a reading of a summary of the book on YouTube. Just type in Basic Economics on YouTube. And you can actually just listen to the, the reading of the book. It's about, I think, 12 hours. <laughs> it's quite long. But you can just put it on in the background while you're driving and listen. The first couple of chapters are very important. There's a discuss about the markets, about price action, about how supply and demand, all these things come into play. And a lot of, a lot of the issues people have uh, with Bitcoin specifically are answered by that. That's perfect. That's a perfect note to end off because the last thing I was going to ask you was a book recommendation. So so with that, we will conclude, inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan, Ustad. Um, we really appreciate your time. Um, for those who are not following Ustad, um, his, uh, your Instagram bio is Crypto Cash Review, correct? Crypto Hash Review. Crypto Hash Review, my bad. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I've learned a lot about Bitcoin and about um, economics in the short time that I've spent studying it. So I would highly yeah. recommend it to everybody else. If you have any Bitcoin questions, um, feel free to forward them to me. I know Stad is a bit busy, but you, I, you have a, you have a, you have a frequently asked question on your website, correct? Um, I mean, basically, anyone who contact us, you can they can do so on our website. Um, okay. We have, um, we are developing a. a um, 
FAQ section on our website. But at the moment, what we've been doing is that anyone who, who asks us a question uh, via the website, we actually make a video out of it. So at the moment, we've started to um, put those videos out on our YouTube channel, which is also called Crypto Hash Review. So every day on these questions, we answer it in the video. Perfect. Perfect. So if anybody has any other questions, by all means, you can check out uh, Ustad Muawiyah's page. Again, it's Crypto Hash Review. Um, and I will put it in the post as well. So with that, we will conclude. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.